Bitcoin is an agreement on a fixed set of rules. And the reason that we agree on these specific rules is because it allows for a system which is more expensive to try to cheat than to just follow the rules that we agree on. And that allows for a fixed money supply, if you want to use the term money, which I think is sort of degrading to Bitcoin. So it allows human beings to interact with one another completely consensually and voluntarily by running a mathematical formula in the back of their heads. And we use computers to help us do the calculations. But at its core, Bitcoin is really a part of us. And uh, and the computers are just fancy abacuses or abacai, abacuses that we use to help us verify that the information we get is, is true and honest. And yeah, it's initiated a paradigm shift for humanity which we called hyper-Bitcoinization. So we're in late-stage fiat and early-stage hyper-Bitcoinization. And it's wonderful to be uh, to have a front-row seat to the future and see it play out. But at its core, Bitcoin is an agreement on a fixed set of rules. All right, this is episode 13 of the Block Reward podcast. Our guest today is Knut Svanholm. Cool thing about having your own Bitcoin podcast I'm starting to discover is just getting the opportunity to have conversations with people who have like really blown your mind at different times. And in my own Bitcoin journey, um, so Knut's an author and has written a few really great Bitcoin books. I want to say one of his books was the fourth or fifth book, Bitcoin book that I read. And uh, this was kind of at a time where I was just starting to get really into it. And one of his books, Everything Divided by 21 Million, which we're going to talk about in the conversation today, was like really, really blew my mind. And he's a guy who does a lot of speaking and, and a lot of writing outside of his books and has a really special way of thinking about human action and the importance of how human behavior can be changed by the rigidity of Bitcoin's rules. And so that's another one of the things that we're going to talk about in our conversation today. Real treat for me, and I hope you guys enjoy. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward podcast. Very special guest today, one of my favorite Bitcoin authors. We are joined by Knut Svanholm. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it's it's one of the coolest things I think I've, I've come to learn about having a Bitcoin podcast is getting the opportunity to actually talk to these people who are responsible for your own orange pill journey. And and uh, you're certainly one of those. And, and part of what I want to do in this conversation today is talk with you about some of your ideas that I found really thought provoking and maybe kept me awake at night trying to uh, ponder. So uh, may, maybe just before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Knut Sonnen. I'm uh, in the middle of my life and my life took a turn for the better here a couple of years ago when my Bitcoin stuff took off. I've written three books about Bitcoin, Bitcoin Sovereignty Through Mathematics, Bitcoin Independence Reimagined and Bitcoin Everything There Is, Everything Divided by 21 Million. And my latest book is about the the science of human action, praxeology. So that's called Praxeology, the Invisible Hand That Feeds You. Very cool. And I also host the Freedom Footprint Show. And I started that show for the same reason that you started yours, to, to talk to interesting people, to, basically to talk to my idols. Very cool. So before you were a Bitcoin author, what were you in your past life? My university degree is Master Mariner. So I was in shipping for a long time. So I was the officer and the captain of uh, 
various boats and ships. I sailed a lot on tall ships and stuff. And and then uh, I had an office career. And my last fiat job was as an HR manager for a shipping company. So I had uh, 250 employees on Swedish and Danish contracts to look after. But when I felt the timing was right, I quit. Never looked back? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> do you remember the idea or the moment when sort of your orange pill happened for you like wh- what was it that, that made it click no i don't <laughs> this is a, a question i get a lot but i don't remember a specific date or a specific thing that got me orange pilled i i think it was this uh i've always been a freedom lover and uh always been libertarian leaning at least and i've also always been kind of nerdy and when i find something i tend to deep dive into it and try to understand it as thoroughly as possible and uh yeah and a a bunch of other i think personality traits that made me primed for finding this thing relatively early i'm not an og in that sense i i've I found Bitcoin around 2015 or 16 or something. So pretty early, but... Pretty early, but not goofy early. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I start every conversation now asking kind of the inverse of the Robert Breedlove question, which is, what is money? And uh, the, the question I'd love to start the conversation with you is, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is an agreement on a fixed set of rules. And the reason that we agree on these specific rules is because it allows for a system which is more expensive to try to cheat than to just follow the rules that we agree on. And that allows for a fixed money supply, if you want to use the term money, which I think is sort of degrading to Bitcoin. So it allows human beings to interact with one another completely consensually and voluntarily by running a mathematical formula in the back of their heads. And uh, we use computers to help us do the calculations. But at its core, Bitcoin is really a part of us. And uh, and the computers are just fancy abacuses or abacai abacuses that we use to help us verify that the information we get is, is true and honest. And yeah, it's initiated a paradigm shift for humanity which we called hyper-Bitcoinization. So we're in late-stage fiat and early-stage hyper-Bitcoinization. And it's wonderful to be uh, to have a front-row seat to the future and see it play out. But at its core, Bitcoin is an agreement on a fixed set of rules. I want to come back to what you, something you said there, because I think that's actually the first time that term has been used on this podcast so far by a guest. Hyper-Bitcoinization. Maybe for our listeners who are possibly newer to Bitcoin, what is hyper-Bitcoinization? Well, in order to explain the term, I think you need some monetary history and to understand that gold did not enter the market because some guy said that this is money. But gold was sort of the good that was that scored highest on the properties of money. So every single good or service has a moneyness to it. So money is really an adjective and not a noun. And this is a, a prerequisite to truly understand what hyper-Bitcoinization means and what Bitcoin means in general. Because you can use anything as money. I could even argue that we're using money now. We're using our voices and our conversational skills to exchange information with one another. And that is, in a sense, money itself. The only thing money does is that it uh, acts as a medium of exchange and allows, allows us to trade with one another and with ourselves, with our future selves. That's why we need the store of value part of it. So uh, money needs to be able to send value across space and across time. 
And since Bitcoin is the only type of money that ever existed that ticks off both those boxes, it stores value over time and it's very easy to send over space, much better than, than any of the other types of money we've had. That will in time, as people realize this, more and more people with, will convert more and more of what they own into Bitcoin. And at some point we reach a scenario where all other types of money are obsoleted or pointless uh, to use anymore because we got this superior thing that is better for any type of transaction. So so I just see hy- hyper-Bitcoinization as people understanding that there is a thing that will make their lives way, way easier if they just voluntarily adopt it and start using it. And another point about hyper-Bitcoinization is that there's no end point to hyper-Bitcoinization. It can go on forever. There's when all the fiat money, fiat currencies are gone, there is still more things out there than that could be used as money. And I think since Bitcoin is so precious and so since they're so scarce, people will be in a long term future, people will be willing to trade anything rather than the Bitcoin. So ironically enough, I think people will stake their reputational capital and start exchanging goods and services with one another, even barter instead of using their Bitcoin. And what this means is like a world where where people are friendlier to one another and where forceful interactions and violent interactions aren't as pro just aren't as profitable. You can point a gun at my head and say, give me all your Bitcoin and you have no means of knowing whether you got all the Bitcoin or not after the attack. Uh, so in that way, Bitcoin acts as a, some type of psychological armor. Say if I own a house, but I own 99 houses worth of Bitcoin on top of that, you can very easily come with an army and take the house. But you, there's no way of taking the Bitcoins because they exist in my head. And you have no way of knowing how many I own. So, so the more sound and reasonable thing to do for you the more profitable thing to do is to just be nice to me and start trading with me instead because that will lead to a better end result for you so i think it moves the shelling point of violence if you will and uh, makes violence less profitable bitcoin is peace we were talking about this in episode seven with uh, taylor sugar about bitcoin demonetizing real estate which is part of what you're, you're talking about this idea of bitcoin absorbing the moneyness away from other things which is uh where you or how you came to the title of your third book the formula 21 million divided by everything divided by 21 million and this is also like everything other than money is being used as money like houses is one thing but also stocks and bonds and equity and whatever anything else you can own is really replacing money as a store of value because we have inflationary currencies that lose value over time so money needs to have that function it needs to be able to store money over time to be a fully functional money that actually serves society and right now we have money that is pretty easy to send across space though borders are in the way like it's it's kind of hard to send an overseas payment but it still functions fairly well as a medium of exchange over space but but it doesn't store value. And that is why houses, for instance, are being used as money instead. People people who have a pile of cash instantly buy something with it because that's that's the reasonable move. That's the more profitable move than to just having money in a bank account, having fiat currencies in a bank account that is guaranteed to lose you value over time. One of the arguments that I commonly get against the concept of hyper-Bitcoinization is... Because it hasn't happened already, it's not going to happen. 
like it's like in the um, the imagination of this idea that it's some kind of light light switch event where it's going to be instantaneous and by virtue of the fact that it hasn't been instantaneous that's the proof that it won't be and have, is this something yeah have you heard this kind of that is not a proof at all i i'm not <laughs> saying it is but the, no we're we're extremely early in the earliest earliest stages of this and there's like all new technologies have an, that, that are successful have an S-shaped adoption curve. So that, that happened with the TV, with the internet, with mobile phones, even with Pokemon Go. <laughs> like uh, first you have a few users and then there's some tipping point where there's a Heinz catch-up effect where everyone's onboarded and then the market gets saturated finally when everyone on earth is using the technology. With Bitcoin, the adoption curve probably looks the, some similar to that. It's just that the price of Bitcoin follows a different curve because these things are absolutely scarce. So you can have an S-shaped adoption, but a J-shaped price curve because the purchasing power can literally go up exponentially forever, which is, uh, or <laughs> close to exponentially forever. That That is a very bold statement. I, I just mean that to put it in simpler, more realistic terms, I'd say it can go up forever and we can always, the world economy, like prices are supposed to drop to the to the marginal cost of production, which, and the prices of almost everything is dropping to that. If you, if you, if you take out your phone and you see, uh, and you really try to figure out how many of the things that are now on your phone that used to cost a lot of money before. So you, ha- you have a flashlight, a calculator, uh, GPS, maps, images of this and that, like access to books, movies, everything, literally everything on the internet. And it's almost free, all of it. All of those things used to cost money. And people think that this is only true for digital or intellectual property, which is a weird term to begin with. But that's not true. All the processes for making physical things have also become cheaper over time very much so so uh, you know a house the the marginal cost of production of a house today uh, in comparison to 40 years ago is just vastly different it's just just that we don't see money ought to reflect that drop in prices but it doesn't since we have a money printer that goes all the time so we're all living in this illusion that prices aren't dropping when they really are it's just that they're not using the the right denominator to to see that happening but if you're on a Bitcoin standard mentally, you can actually see how prices drop over time. So it's only a matter of time before people realize this. But to counter the argument of why it hasn't happened yet, we have to remember that people have been lulled into this notion of money as a physical thing that is issued by a central bank and that some people in charge, quote unquote, in charge of the a nation's economy get to set the rules. This is simply not true. You and I decide what money is, and we always have. We have 12 years of public education and mainstream media spewing out these things like they're absolute truths. And it's going to take a lot, take a while to for people to realize the extent to which they've been lied to. That takes a lot of time. So, so I think the argument that it uh, hasn't happened yet, therefore it'll never happen, is just confused. Yeah. One of the ways that I love to see it addressed, uh, Parker Lewis likes to ha- recently put out a great talk. And in it, he says that it's impossible for something even to function as an inflation hedge truly when 3% of the population understands what it does. Th- this is just his way of sort of simply addressing the uh, not even the hyper argument. But 
it's still such a small number of people who would know even why you would own Bitcoin, let alone where it could end up. Yeah, and I, I travel a lot to a lot of conferences and meetups and stuff. And there aren't very many people in any of them, really, if if you compare it to like a, a, a big football game or something. So, so we're still extremely early. The thing is that Bitcoiners are absolutely everywhere in the smallest one horse town in the fringes of countries. There's a Bitcoiner there, guaranteed. Like we're absolutely everywhere, and most of us don't even go to conferences or meetups. So, so I think we're just the things you see on the surface that is not giving you a proper picture of what this transition looks like. Because I think we're reaching a critical mass. I know, for instance, in in Sweden, where I'm from originally from, I talked to some of the exchanges there, and they've sold bitcoins to about three hundred thousand people. That's one exchange, and how many customers they've had over the last eleven years, and add another hundred thousand for the next biggest exchange, because of course there's some overlap. And if you add another hundred thousand people who got their bitcoins by some other means than using an, a Swedish exchange, maybe an international exchange, or just exchanging their goods and services for Bitcoin. That means that 5% of the population, like half a million people, uh, it's a country of 10 million people. So 5% of the population already has the capability of paying other people in Bitcoin. And everyone has the ability to receive it because receiving it is easy. You just download an app on your phone or you can even roll dice or flip a coin 256 times uh, thereby you get a private key from that you can derive a public key and people could send money to that coin toss so everyone on earth has the capability to receive a bitcoin you just need to d- know how to do it but it's simple and those who already own some bitcoin have the ability to pay other people in it so so this thing already exists below the the fiat monetary layer the potential for bitcoin hyper bitcoinization to happen is already there it's everywhere i saw you said recently bitcoin is backed by human action which was a phrase i thought was really interesting I hear a lot that Bitcoin is backed by energy, and I think that's just part of the bigger picture. Because while miners or ASICs, mining computers, they consume a lot of energy. And why is this? The purpose of this is to make the system hard to cheat. So finding a Bitcoin is just finding a number. You hash a block, including a random number, and then you put that through a formula which gives you a a string of numbers that looks random, but if you do the same thing over and over again, And with another random number, you get a completely different string of numbers. And what the miners are doing is that they're trying to find a number beginning with a specific number of zeros as decided by the difficulty adjustment algorithm. That's a lot of (laughs) (laughs) complex, fancy words. But at the end of the day, the miner is not the ASIC. The node is not the Raspberry Pi. And the, the Bitcoin is not the wallet software. Like, it's all us. Because the miner is really the guy deciding to buy those computers, run the software, and pay for the electricity to be in this game. It always requires a human action to participate. It's the flip side of Bitcoin being voluntary. No one is forced to use Bitcoin. No one is forced to mine Bitcoin. It's a decision made by a person. And running a node is also a decision made by a person. So back to this abacus thing, like... 
the computers are just there to help us do the calculation. So they're an extension of our minds. Just like the, if you take the most, the simplest tool ever, like a stick, uh, a chimpanzee using a stick to put into uh, an anthill to get more ants per second to eat. A computer is just a fancy version of that. All tools we ever invented were there to do one thing. They were de- they're invented to save us time in doing something. And the computers used in Bitcoin are exactly that. They're saving us time by doing the calculation for us, which is why we can get to quintillion terahashes per second and stuff like this, or quintillion hashes per, per second, which is just a figure that is incomprehensible to the human mind, <laughs> how, 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 how big that number is. Instead of you know doing the calculation by hand, and uh, broadcasting it to a network is, it simply wouldn't work. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin is backed by people deciding to run the computers and not by the energy. It's also backed by, since you know, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin protocol can be upgraded, but only if we all agree that that's a good idea. And running a specific type of software to, to show what kind of Bitcoin you're willing to accept is also a human decision. It's a human action that backs the network. The nodes, the, the miners, the users, they're all part of the same organism in that sense. And the flip side of that, the upgrading system, is that we define what's good by what happened in Bitcoin and not the other way around. So, so bad ideas can't be implemented because we all agreed that they were a good idea. So we're the ones deciding what Bitcoin is. And the way we do that is that we see the network and we see the software and what it's doing and we decide where the, whether we want to use this thing or not and what chain we want to, to be on, which is why Bitcoin Cash didn't work. It's by, why all the other forks and altcoins can never work because this requires us to agree on a fixed set of rules, which means we're damn near ossification, probably, where it will never change again because changes are incrementally harder to implement over time, which means that we've probably seen the last Bitcoin hard fork <laughs> I mean, it hard forks all the time, but there are failed attempts at hard forks. We, we're yet to see a, a hard fork where the um, proposed upgrade is the winning side, if you know what I mean. So just so, so for anyone who's listening, a hard fork, the hard forks that have happened in the history of Bitcoin are a change that's resulted in an, basically an entirely new coin. And every time that's happened so far, the herd has stayed with the original coin and the, the offshoot community. Not every time. There were some some hard forks in the very early stages of Bitcoin that it actually made everyone upgrade to the newest version. But the po- point is, it didn't happen in 2017 when the block size wars played out. So what happened then was that there were two suggested upgrades, one called segregated witness, which is a technology that allows for the lightning network to exist. And that was a soft fork, meaning that you can upgrade this, you can choose to upgrade the software or not, but the old software will still be functioning. So you don't need to upgrade your node. This is not going to be an episode for noobs at all, I think. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, and a hard fork requires every every node to upgrade in order to run the software at all. So then a, a bunch of miners and big companies in Bitcoin colluded and said that, okay, we'll implement SegWit, but only if we can increase the block size to two megabytes per block via a hard fork. And they all signaled that they would do that, uh, which in the end didn't happen because the users signaled, uh, or the node runners signaled that we're not going to use this chain because we don't want the block size to increase 
because an increase of the block size would mean a that the size of the entire blockchain would be becoming bigger at such a rate that it would be impossible for the the little guy to run a full node at some point and thereby the whole game theory of the thing breaks down so so it never happened and to me that that specific event or that lack of a specific event was proof that the users actually were in charge and that the miners are really the slaves of the users in this system which for me that was a certainly a holy shit moment it's it's not when i was orange pilled but it's when i my uh, conviction that this thing actually works uh, was ironclad if you will i was convinced then anyone can propose changes to bitcoin but if if everyone doesn't come with them then this is what you're talking about with uh, backed by human action. All of it is. Because at the end of the day, the Bitcoins are you and me. First time I thought about this, I thought about like, what if I remember a seed phrase? So a seed phrase is a representation of a private key. And it's written out as 12 or 24 words instead of this string of numbers. So the idea I had was, what if you remember, if you memorize this string of words, so these 12 words, if you memorize them and then destroy every other thing they're recorded on, so so the words only exist in your head, then you literally are those Bitcoins because they don't exist anywhere else than in your mind. Then I gave that another thought, but well, hang on a minute, all Bitcoin addresses are hidden because someone is keeping a secret somewhere. So even if I have the seed phrase written down, it's still in my head where I have written it down and how to unlock those Bitcoins. So in that sense, all the Bitcoins exist in someone's head, uh, which is just mind-blowing to me because that means we all are the Bitcoins. There's no line between the software and the software on our computers and the software in our heads. We we truly are this thing. And so the the saying goes, we're all Satoshi. Yeah, we're all Satoshis. (laughs) We are the Satoshis, literally. You have some really interesting things to say about what that ends up doing to people and kind of this idea of like the Bitcoin ethos, like Bitcoin as a community is a lot more than a, a system of values built around money. Yeah, so so Bitcoin gives us a couple of incentives. So we're all incentivized to pump our bags, for lack of a better term. We all want Bitcoin's value to go up. We all want the NGU technology number go up. And how do we get there? Well, we promote Bitcoin and we help other people promote Bitcoin and we help other Bitcoiners succeed in whatever they're doing to further adoption and to provide goods and services to other people to make this thing a reality. And we're also incentivized to save rather than spend because it's a deflationary currency. There's a limited supply. So we're incentivized to adopt a lower time preference and at the same time we're incentivized to help one another which means that we can be awesome to one another without even ever exchanging a single satoshi i would categorize conversations like this as you know bitcoiners helping one another and thereby by proxy helping bitcoin so we're all incentivized to help bitcoin succeed and we're all incentivized to help each other succeed which means that like by running a mathematical experiment in the back of our heads we unlocked something in our hearts that allows us to wear them on our sleeves in public and just help one another and be awesome to one another instead of, you know, being backstabby and and greedy. And I think this is just so underrated what this is doing to the development of mankind and the human psyche in general if you just extrapolate where this is going bitcoin is a hill to die on because it's also a valley to live in i think it brings us to a place where where every human being would like to be 
because it's a place where violence is much less profitable and therefore there is less violence in a hyper-Bitcoinized society. More and more things are consensual and voluntary. It's a beautiful way to phrase it. I, you know, and I think it's also true and we're, we're sort of living in, in maybe the peak of this right now is when, when money is infinite, that's when everything else becomes scarce. And to get back to the start of the conversation about real estate, it's like bad money actually has the inverse effect it inherently places us in competition with each other for us all to try to you know, do what we can for self-preservation. And market competition or catalactics, as the, uh, which is the correct praxeological term for it, is a good thing. I mean, we want enterprises to compete for pro- in providing the best product to people. That's how we get to better and better products and cheaper and cheaper prices over time. Like market competition is a good thing. The opposite of market competition is biological competition so fang and claw or nuclear bombs whatever is the violence that's like the winner takes all thing that the violent way of getting into positions of power and bitcoin makes catalactic competition easier and cheaper biological competition harder and more expensive but on top of that it also incentivizes us to not even compete but just collaborate which is just fantastic like it's it's like free market economics on on absolute steroids here uh maybe steroids is a wrong term because steroids are sort of short uh, high time preference thing it's more like holy shit when we have an absolutely scarce money that is teleportable and divisible that makes everything so much better and if you're in the bitcoin space and if you're hanging out with other bitcoiners and you're living and breathing this thing you can actually see a glimpse of what the future looks like. It's absolutely awesome. Very exciting. It's the most exciting thing happening in the world today by far. There's not even a close... (laughs) There is no second best. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I wanted to ask you about, which you say and have said that Bitcoin is a one-time event. And maybe you could just explain why this is going to be the, the only time Bitcoin can only happen one time. Yes, so the discovery of Bitcoin or the invention of Bitcoin was the discovery of absolute digital scarcity. And that is, at its core, it's resistance to replicability on the internet. Like something that is resistant to being replicated. And that is by its very nature something that you can't replicate. Because if you could, the whole invention is pointless. I find it fascinating that so few people see this for what it is. It's just a number that can't be copied. If we have a number that can't be copied, all the other numbers that are obviously copies of this number, they don't matter in that game. So all the shit coins, all the old coins, uh, all the all the other bullshit, it's just piggybacking on the success of the idea, the discovery of something completely resistant, uh, resistant to replication on the internet. Because the internet is just us as well. It's, it's just us communicating. It's information. But now we have an informational element, if you want to go <laughs> down I that do. road. You can compare the discovery of Bitcoin to the discovery of a new element on the periodic table. Okay, th- this is kind of tough to unpack, but I'll, I'll do my best. In the quantum realm, like wh- if you zoom in on reality as far as you can, Everything is just probabilities. And qubits go into a state of a one and a zero. It's binary, like true or false. One state rather than the other. When you observe them, the very act of observation changes the state to something that you can measure. 
And before before there's an observer, I mean, the quantum physics is really weird. If you don't grasp how weird it is, you haven't understood it at all. It's very, very weird. And I, I don't claim to understand it m- myself, but I, I know some bits of it, pun intended, because a bit is the smallest unit. That's That's the thing. So, and if you look at what elements on the periodic table that were suitable as money in the past, you you find gold is what the market shows as money for 5,000 years of human history. Because gold had some specific properties, gold was scarce. There was only one isotope of gold that was durable over time. It's mononucleidic, whatever that word means. And it's a shiny piece of rock that was suitable as, as money for many, many years. Uh, or millennia. Therefore, uh, the um, pseudoscience of alchemy was pursued over over millennia too. Like people tried to figure out a way to create gold by some chemical process. They tried to replicate. They tried to figure out a way to make cheap gold. The thing is, if if the alchemists had succeeded in finding a way to to create gold, they would have destroyed the very Thing that made gold valuable in the first place, that it was scarce and that the, there was a, a finite amount of it or a perceived finite amount of it. So in that sense, central banking is successful alchemy because they figured out a way to fool people that they could create more gold by running a money printer. At one point in time, dollar bills were redeemable for a, a an amount of gold, a specific amount of gold. They aren't anymore. They haven't been since at least 1971. But instead, they just print more and more and more of this thing, which is doing exactly what Austrian economics predicted it would do for a long time. Uh, It's just diluting the value of the dollar and every other fiat currency in the world. So the alchemists should have been looking for the properties of gold and not gold itself, because creating more gold would have destroyed the value proposition of gold. So what if we could somehow reverse engineer an element, a new element on the periodic table? Sounds like a wild idea. Like, so what properties would such an element need to have? Well, it would need to be scarce. So we need to find something that is finite. And it would have to be divisible. So we need to find something that we can break up into smaller and smaller parts. And it would need to be very, very transportable in order to be quicker to send over space and easier to send over space than traditional fiat currencies, which are just entries in a database on a computer. So how do we find these properties? Okay, in order for the element to be as transportable as possible, it couldn't have mass. Uh, Neutrons and protons are not allowed. So we're dealing with an element made up of only electrons, because if you add protons and neutrons, it's heavy, it's too heavy to, to teleport to the other side of the world. So how do we find what other properties do elements on the periodic table have? Well, they have something called oh, I don't remember the word for it, unfortunately, but they're they're more or less hard to destroy, and they can also carry more or less electric electric charge. So you can view Bitcoin as the discovery of this new element element zero uh, on the periodic table that has no mass at all. It's even simpler than a hydrogen atom. So element zero is just a way, like, how would we know that we've found such an element? Well, whoever finds the hash of the number is the element in itself, because like the, the hash proves that someone put in the work to find the thing. Because you can look at the number starting with X amount of zeros in the beginning and see that someone put a lot of energy into finding this. That is proof of work. That is what proof of work means. 
it's hard to forge but easy to verify so in that sense you can you can view bitcoin as an informational element something on the periodic table that has all the properties that a good money needs to have and way better than any of the traditional elements because it's absolutely teleportable between brains because it's just information it's the informational element it's an element made up of pure information that's the tldr there's a way better explanation of this exists as a video if you follow yoni appleberg who makes uh, little animations of his own works and of some of my works we've collaborated a lot of times i got a playlist of all of those videos maybe you can put in the show notes later for sure yeah we'll make those available for anyone who's curious and uh, you use the word discover there and you've talked about the idea that bitcoin wasn't invented talk a little bit more about the discovery of bitcoin was the wheel invented or discovered? Well, I would say, argue that it was invented, but the wheel is not a good analogy to describe Bitcoin. It's more like the circle. The circular shape was the best geometrical shape to construct a wheel in. And likewise, Bitcoin is the, the best geometrical shape to function as money. <laughs> so there are more metaphors you can do, like America was discovered it could only be discovered once. Once you discovered it, it, do- it didn't matter if you sailed there and uh, walked upon the shore. Someone else had already figured it out. And yeah, people who are unaware of Bitcoin, unaware of blockchains and unaware of proof of work, they could discover it again. But to people who already know that this thing exists, it's undiscoverable a second time. Because everyone trying to discover it a second time would have insider information on how it works. So they could leverage the system and therefore the events that played out, Satoshi disappearing, the block size wars and all of this could never happen in the same order again because everyone would know what to do in a certain situation to enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. So I think the way Bitcoin played out played a huge part in why it's working now. So we're sort of here to observe this thing rather than to have opinions about what to do with it. It will do whatever it will do and it's it will still always be completely voluntary. Either you're in or you're not. And I'm convinced that it works to the extent that I'm on board forever. And like a, like a growing number of people around the world. Yeah. When people would ask you about getting involved in Bitcoin. You mean getting involved as in just having some Bitcoin or, or uh, being a public persona in bitcoin that's a, because those are two very different things. two very different things yeah pe- people who are just listening and thinking about making their first bitcoin purchase or you know th- these are some big ideas to chew on i mean i'm sure in your daily life people have, approach you all the time and, and what do you say to new people who are interested or just looking where to start i give them some links and i um i try to i do this i talk to them and try to explain my ideas and most of them think i'm a complete idiot <laughs> and i'm fine with that <laughs> I mean, these are hard concepts to explain for the reasons I, I laid out before that we've been, we have such a conviction that money is this thing that is issued by a central bank. But everyone believes that to be true and it's simply not, uh, but it's, it's kind of hard. What was that Mark Twain t- quote? Like it's, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled, convince them they've been fooled. Exactly. And I think that's that's the tricky part about Bitcoin because you can't really explain it without first convincing people that they have been fooled. So I think that's the biggest barrier. Yeah, one has to wonder how bad things are going to have to get with money. Well, I, I try to be an optimist. I think that people can realize that things are going to shit before they actually go to shit. 
I mean, some people need pain to figure something out, but there's a lot of us out there who don't actually need to experience the pain, but but could, uh, you know, see where things are going and uh, realize that it's uh, time to hit the lifeboats as soon as possible before the Titanic sinks. Yeah, one of your favorite talks of is Bitcoin is love, which is uh, to take it back to more of a positive, uh, you know, you'd strike me, I would categorize you definitely much more as an optimist. Yeah, because like if we're pessimistic, they've already won. Like this is this is the Soviet Union didn't end until people were optimistic that it would. <laughs> like every for the for 70 years people thought that this is the way things are and there's nothing to do about it. But that's simply not true. Like we can emancipate ourselves. We can choose to opt out and we can choose to I mean there's some risk involved in in uh, becoming too much of a public bitcoiner and because of course there is but there's risk to everything like what's the biggest risk to me living a mundane life and staying in a hamster's wheel all my life and doing nothing and being happy with own nothing and be happy be happier with less and less per year because of inflation that is something i dread way more than being a bitcoin martyr <laughs> like Whatever happens, I can still leave this earth happy that I made decisions that set an example for my kids and for my peers. So I'm Bitcoin makes you humble, but still, <laughs> I'm very proud that I, I chose this path. If listeners wanted to find more of your work, is there a particular place you would want them directed? I want them to subscribe to the Freedom Footprint Show, which is my pod. That There are two episodes per week. Usually, with some great guests, we've had almost all the big names in Bitcoin on at this point. And you can also find my my books and my um, whatever else I'm doing at knutsvanom.com, which is a, a website I manage myself, so I don't update it very often. But still, you'll find some Everything Divided merch and stuff there, and uh, links to all of the videos and, uh, and the books. The books are available from bitcoinbook.shop if you want to pay in Bitcoin, or but they're also all available on Amazon. So that's where you'll find me. Awesome. Newt, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was a real pleasure. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 